Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Wolf Ethan Perrin O'Neill. And I'm David Simon Crowther. And we are History in Technicolor! Great intro, Wolf. Thank Great you, David. Intro. So, as you can tell, we practiced a lot. <laughs> it definitely wasn't the first and only time we did it. Well, it was not the only first time. So, tell me, Wolf, what are we doing today? What we are we doing, doing Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Uh, but hang on. That's not in any way historical. Why are we doing that? Well, I think... You'll find that when we study this and we discuss this throughout, right, okay. we're going to work out if it does have any historical right. accuracy. <laughs> How likely is that on a scale of 1 to 10? Anyway, we'll find out. We, we will. Very good. Anyway, we love the movie, so who cares? So for anyone out there who hasn't seen it, Bill right. and Ted's Excellent Adventure is the hugely popular 1989 sci-fi comedy starring the legendary Keanu Reeves as Ted Theodore Logan and Alex Winters <laughs> as Bill S. Preston Esquire. <laughs> Who, with the help of Rufus, played by comedian George Carlin, travel back in time to collect historical figures for a school exam. If they fail, they flunk out of school and risk going to military school. And Bogus, the world dude. will Sorry, never know world peace. <laughs> never know world peace. Yeah, and oh. harmony without a society built around the music of their band Wild Stallions. <laughs> Wild Stallions. And we are, of course, wearing our Wild Stallions t-shirt. Yep. Whoa. Provided by Last Exit to Nowhere. Yeah, shall I make that noise? Great <laughs> company. Mm, okay. <laughs> oh, by the way, we at some point have to tackle the fact that Bill and Ted is far better than Wayne's World. No, no. So I don't uh, want to have this to discussion. At some point, but later, yeah. It's just because Lewis raised the fact that he did you were incorrect. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Would it be incorrect? I anyway. love Wayne's World, no, but I also right. love Bill and Ted. Okay, we can like so, both. Great, David. How many times have you seen this film? Mm, Ten. Did you see it when it came out? I did. I love the movie. I think it's. I think it's a fantastic movie. I love the whole. Uh, I love the whole language thing. You know the whole 
bogus dude. We are in danger of failing most heinously. Bill. Oh, whatever. I just love all that stuff. Keanu is just, you know, he's a bit of a genius, isn't he? He's you know, exceptional. His bendy knees and his floppy hair. Uh, and the whole San Dimas thing is great. And, you know, the Socrates Johnson. I mean, Socrates Johnson is a classic, isn't it? Best bit of the whole movie. Okay, best bit of the whole movie. They get out of the telephone box that they're racing around through time in. And at that time, they've only got Socrates Johnson and Billy the Kid. Yep. And they tell Billy and Socrates to stop while they go and look somebody else. And Billy the Kid and Socrates start playing ball with each other. It's <laughs> yes. just... The best. Billy the Kid, so great Johnson. They're chucking a ball to each other. I read the other day that there are 70 uses of the word dude in <laughs> Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Just thought I should throw out there. I love the fact that all their, their lines are from songs. So we are just dust in the wind, dude. You know, which is, of course, so true. I, I love the bit in Bogus Journey where they go to heaven and they have to prove at the pearly gates that they can go to speak to God. And they ask, um, what is the meaning of life? And they go, every rose has a thorn, <laughs> just like every night has its dawn. <laughs> and they just sing the lyrics of the song, and then they get let into heaven. <laughs> Who's that song by? Oh, I can't really remember. You. It's not one of your groups, anyway. No, but I did listen to it after uh, I uh, watched the movie. I hope you did. Um, yeah, obviously, the movie is incredible. It's insanely funny and silly, and it's just the perfect family movie. And I can clearly remember watching it for that first time. Right. And I must have been quite young because I definitely didn't know who all these historical figures were. So this is, is that why, right? So this is why I'm proposing this didn't movie. Didn't know who Napoleon was. I can't remember which ones I knew and which ones I didn't. Right. Okay. But I was definitely sort of under ten. Right. And it could be that I was like, oh, who's Joan of Arc? Right. Well, it's a fair question. Who is Joan of Arc? <clears throat> so. I think that if you watch this movie young enough, right. it's a genuinely hey, good hey, genuinely educational to giving you a brief synopsis right. of eight influential historical figures throughout time right. and fuels an interest in history. Is it, though? I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest that maybe it <laughs> I'm is. I'm going to posit that. Okay, also, right. I have to mention, this is so perfect for us, mm. this movie features two mentions of Iron Maiden <laughs> and what, at least one mention of Led Zeppelin your favourite band? My favourite uh, band? Yeah. Mm, perfect. Whoa. Okay, so we like the movie. Basically. Yeah. So that is, in answer to your question, yeah. Seen it loads and loads of time and uh, loved it. Are we going to be at all mm, neutral and perhaps critical of anything about this think, film? I don't think so. Is there anything bad about it? There is one bad bit. There is a lime barrel moment. Okay. Do you want the lime barrel moment now? Yeah, go ahead. Keep that no. So, okay, so they're in the castle, okay, and he is the Duke of Ted, and I am the Earl of Preston, okay? They're in the, yeah, uh, and they're in the, they're, uh, so, and these are, they're in armours, and they're having a, and Ted rolls down the stairs, okay, to the bottom, and he's not in his suit of armour. Well, how does that happen? <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, yeah, how does yeah. that happen? Come on. I mean, the rest of it is all, you know, obviously entirely possible and very uh, realistic. That bit, you know, just doesn't work for me. Do the fact they travel around time in a, in a telephone kiosk, absolutely fine. The fact that he falls out of his armour, not acceptable. So I did a kind of a little bit of digging into kind of the reviews from the time right. to try and work out if, it's, if it was successful upon release uh -huh. or if it's kind of grown within the public's... Uh, mind. Yeah. Do I have an answer? Not necessarily. <laughs> but there were that? quite a lot of reviews yeah. that were very mixed or even right. negative. 
um, suggesting that a lot of the historical characters are never really given anything good to do <laughs> or or have any relation to the original figures in any it's, way. It's very variable, isn't it's it? It's potentially a little bit offensive to almost all of them. <laughs> uh, and it's just very dumb overall. The film is quite chaotic. and The I, film is amazingly dumb. Rewatching it again, it can sometimes feel like a selection of sketches right. put together at yeah, times. absolutely. So I'm yeah, just going to throw that out there. Mm-hmm. And definitely the plot makes no sense. But no. that's kind of why I love it. <laughs> it's so bonkers. Do you know, one of the things that offends me most about the movie is how, you know, how rubbish the students are. I mean, Bill and Ted are supposed to be rubbish and get marked rubbishly all the time. What about the rest of them? There's hardly any one of them that doesn't trot out rubbish platitudes with almost no... In- Sir Divas High Football Rules! <laughs> that guy, for example. I think I the mean, point they is should all be failed. Yeah, but he deliberately... De- like, he is a stupid person who does yes. a terrible presentation. <laughs> but they're not... You, you know... What are they, they teach at this school? What are they teach at this school? Anyway. I think my point was going to be that I, I think that it generally underperformed critically. Right. But it's lived on in the hearts of its so audience. So it's become a good old cult classic thing, is that what and, you're saying? Yes, and now, 25 years on, we're on the brink of Bill and Ted 3. Yeah, Which I'm, I'm excited about. I'm trying can't to imagine what they will be it like as, as old men. Yeah, fat guys. Can't be. I suppose Keanu knew isn't, but you know. Alex I, I don't think they're going to be fat. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think he's lost it I think well. the point was they were really dumb teenagers. Yeah. Like the epitome of that dumb stoner-like teenager. Yeah. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see what that's like. A few other side facts about the film. The director, Stephen Herrick, also made The Mighty Ducks. <laughs> <laughs> and the live-action remake of 101 Dalmatians right. with Glenn Close. Oh, is that right? Which is actually a great version is of it? 101 Dalmatians. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so I've got to say, word for it. two good films, but not much of a career What was the first otherwise. one about ducks? The Mighty Ducks? The Never ho- heard of it. You- Never heard of it. It's the film about the hockey team. The really, like, underdog hockey oh, that one. Emilio never Estevez is their coach. Oh, never heard of it. Okay. It's, it's actually pretty great. It's pretty great. <laughs> okay, The Mighty Ducks. A formative movie. I'll look up for that one. And there's a lot of sequels. Yeah, we know one. So, I think uh, we've critically examined this You think we've enough. critically examined And I think what we're going to do now, everyone, is we're going to move through each of the historical figures. Okay, yep. Discussing their historical right. presentation and accuracy, as well as kind of the overall okay. quality of the movie. Very good. And per the final performance, yep. we're going to begin with Billy the Kid, a.k.a. Herman the Kid. <laughs> right, okay, Billy the Kid. Well, actually, funny enough, I didn't know enough about Billy, and I've got a little photograph of him here. And he does look quite like a kid. Character in the film, then. He was a kid. He was, yes, indeed. Very young. Uh, when he died. So, um, born 1859. Uh, handed down and shot dead in 1881. Okay. By Pat Garrett, By right? Pat Garrett, yeah, which is, you know, it's all coming together, actually, about Pat Garrett. Um, so in the film, then, as a character, he's a gambler, good with his guns, cheats at cards, you know, which is clearly unacceptable. Uh, but he's rather nice. You know, he's a rather compliant kind of guy who does what he's told and is, you know, all out for helping Bill and Ted in their project. Hence, the playing ball with Socrates bit. You know, there he is, keeping him amused and all the rest of it. So essentially, his character in the film compared to his career, well, you can judge in a moment. So, born William Henry McCarty, 1859, New York, orphaned at the age of 15, slim physique, sandy blonde hair, blue eyes, wore this sort of sugar sugarloaf sombrero hat with a it's sort of a signature thing. Apparently killed 21 men during his days as an outlaw, although, you know, they can't count them up, so they're not sure. It might be a bit of um, uh, hyperbole in there. 
Moved to Arizona briefly after being involved in crime in New York. Uh, joined up with a gang of gunfighters and fought something called the Lincoln County War. It's all good stuff, actually. I must admit, I don't know any of. The, I didn't know any of this background. It was rather fun finding out. Um, so they had this sort of fight between uh, uh, the regulators and the other side, and McCarthy escapes and became an outlaw and a fugitive. Stole horses and cattle, and after him came uh, Pat Garrett. After he shot a sh- sheriff, actually, so he shot the sheriff. Yeah, he sheriff, shot the sheriff. He didn't he? We've solved the sheriff. Um, and eventually, he's hunted down by Sheriff Pat Garrett and. And, and shot. Uh, Pat Garrett was himself shot, apparently, at some point. That's how he dies. Oh, he dies again later yeah, on. Yeah, uh, killed by somebody on some argument about uh, goats. Indeed. Oh, goats are, you know, important things. So, and he's quite in the news, was Billy the Kid. You know, he was, uh, there were reports run, uh, there was an, uh, an interview done in a jailhouse in Las Vegas, for example. Um, so he's sort of a character. Was, was that the prison that he escaped from? I think it might have been. Because he did this in, this daring prison escape in 1881, uh, where he he broke out of the prison, killed a bunch of the guards, yeah. and then got away. And then they had to, that was when they hunted him down a yeah. second time. And shot him, yeah. Because Pat Guy didn't want to give him up, did he? Uh, but then he did, and then he escaped. So kind of. So uh, you know, he's not, you know, he's not a fun guy to be with. He's nothing like the character in the movie. Is my point? Yes. You know, in terms of historical accuracy, we're talking, you know, even worse than Braveheart levels. Yeah, and and what can I say? What more can I say than that? You know, apparently, apart from the fact that he wears a hat and he's got a gun, that's it. Yeah, he he does display a wanted poster in the movie, which probably is accurate. Oh, and the other thing is that in real life he did play ball with say Chris Johnson, but apart from that, you know, it's totally totally inaccurate. So rubbish. I, I think for me the biggest error is the fact that in real life he died when he was 21. And in the movie, he looks like he's much older. <laughs> much older. <laughs> he does look a little bit older, yeah, it's true. Also, I love that... That's the worst thing, is it? No, well, maybe the second worst <laughs> thing is when they when they get caught cheating and they end up in that, that fight in the, like, OK Corral. Yeah. He, an expert marksman, is saved by Bill and Ted because he cannot save himself. <laughs> That's true. He's saved by the lads from San Dimas. Yeah. That, that doesn't make any sense. He's this expert gunman, yeah. and he doesn't pull his gun out or shoot anybody. Yeah, and that's because he has... he's a nice bloke in the I film. Know. You know, he's just a nice, gentle guy. You know, although he does, this is where I think the prison escape comes in. He has that daring rescue attempt where he saves Bill and Ted. Yes, that's but then disguise themselves, yeah. and then he races off in the horse and cart, which we know he could he could ride if he's a cattle rustler. Indeed, yeah. And uh, yeah, he escapes. <laughs> a great okay. prison escape. So you're you're saying that it should be less than. More better than Braveheart, then, from what you're saying. Uh, is everything better than Braveheart? <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, so I think pretty feeble. So creates Johnson. The other thing I have to ask, yeah. why do you think they picked Billy the Kid if during the presentation he, j- he just fires yes. one shot to blow out a light in the school hall? It's very uneven about who gets all the attention. So And then he, he's like, welcome, Bill and Ted. And then he goes off the stage and doesn't do anything. <laughs> It is very strange. I mean, they're, it's a completely eclectic group of characters. But we'll come to that later when we select our very own eight people that we will bring forward. Yes. And, and you know, everybody can prepare for that. And we'll have a I wonder if they just wanted to go to the Wild West or if they already had all the movie sets yes. ready. <laughs> so it was easy access. Okay, so who's next? Next is Socrates, Socrates Johnson, also known as Socrates <laughs> to some. One of the best lines in the movie. Hey, Socrates, look him up. It's under Socrates. <laughs> go. Okay, so uh, Socrates, 
lived from 470 to 39 BC and was the most bodacious <laughs> philosophizer in ancient Greece. You've been practicing this, haven't you? Uh, a little bit. <laughs> My whole life, David. I've been building up to this my whole this life. Your whole life. I did realize, I do understand that bodacious is actually a word. Yes. Huh? There you go. He's often Famous. cited as one of the founders of Western philosophy, specifically moral philosophy, uh, philosophy, despite never once writing down any of his teachings or beliefs. His legacy is passed on to us by the writings of his students Plato and Xenophon, as well as the contemporary works of playwrights and storytellers from the time, who often included him as a character in their plays. He grew up in... Pericles' Athens, and in his earlier years he served as a soldier, fighting in several battles during the Peloponnesian War, and his true influence came as a teacher, which is what we kind of know. He was famed throughout Athens and would stop and engage with, stop people and engage them with philosophical questions, whether in the street, at the agra, or at parties for the elite. He would challenge everybody. Uh, he would oh, quite sounds irritating. Yeah. Do we I, now understand? He was really, I think he was quite hated. <laughs> well, he's not the gadfly, is he? Huh? If somebody gets called the gadfly, is that Socrates? Uh, what's a gadfly? You know, a gadfly thing that bites you constantly. Maybe. Hmm. Uh, and do we know what the so- Socratic method is now? Because we did. I have that did come out in a previous. I, I believe the Socratic edition. method is uh-huh. you never offer offer up your opinion. Right, okay. You just offer up more questions, I see. and those questions coax out the new informed answer from the person. So, for example, he would ask somebody what they think virtue is. Right. They would give him an initial answer, and then he would ask them more questions, and then they would reach a point where he kind of would make them realise that their first understanding of virtue right. is incorrect or not what they really mean, right. and he would keep pushing them until they would reach a new elevated understanding of right. the question, okay, in theory. So, so not the one that you use at my school where you write it down, and if you didn't get it right, you got clipped round the air and told to write it again then. That's not the Socratic method. I don't, I don't believe okay, so. Great. We'll call that the Loughborough method from now on then. <laughs> uh, so Plato's dialogues are among the most comprehensive accounts of Socrates to survive from antiquity. And many historians believe these accounts are the ones that most reflect the true identity of Socrates compared to, say, Xenophon's. But we should consider that all these people writing about him are probably focusing some of their own thoughts, personalities and ideas channeling them through him. Mm-hmm. They just believe that Plato's is probably the most accurate, in the early dialogues at least. Socrates became renowned for his contributions to ethics and epistemology, and his influence was so profound that philosophers before him have now become known as pre-Socratic. Mm-hmm. I see. Okay. While some of his methods, techniques, and concepts have been named after him, as you've already mentioned, the Socratic okay. method, and he's probably influenced all of philosophy ever since, and we continue to refer to him. Uh, and also, it should be known the Oracle at Delphi declared him the wisest man in Athens. Is that right? Supposedly. Hey. And <laughs> I, I, I didn't. I never thought the the Oracle at Delphi. I thought was always a bit more Delphic than that. I don't think it ever said, "Hey, this is guy is great." It just gives you something you can read either way, doesn't it? I thought somebody uh, supposedly. I think the story right. goes that somebody asked the Oracle at Delphi if Socrates was the or who was the wisest man in Athens. Right. And the Oracle said Socrates. He said, "No, that can't be true. I know nothing." And then. After another answer, he was like, okay, yeah, I probably am the wise man. <laughs> it happens. Okay. How do you think the film portrays him? Oh, he's a very compliant chap. He's a very nice, very willing, always trying to help out, and uh, very self-abnegating, you know, self-deprecating and steps back, no? Yeah? Is yeah. he a bit of a joker? 
It's a little bit of a joke. He likes a bit of a joke. There's a bit of a light in his eye, yeah? I am Socrates. He's... <laughs> I think he's one of the most I mean, he's very innocent and playful, yes. I mean, he's not at all irritating and gadflyish, is he? I think he's a little bit mischievous. I think... Do you remember when he... Um, do you remember when that girl calls Sigmund Freud a geek? And then, he's, and then he keeps calling him a geek and laughing at him? <laughs> so, again, not very like Socrates, is he? No. No. <laughs> But wait, there, are, there are, there's a lot more about Socrates that's talked about in this film, so there's right. actually a little bit more to go off compared to Billy the he Kid. He is. He's one of the main characters, isn't he? Far yes. more than Billy the Kid, yeah. Um, he's the second one they recruit, so mm-hmm. he's in it for quite a lot, and he features in a lot of the main scenes. I do think an exceptional moment comes in the film when they read a quote from Socrates and then reply, and the quote goes, The only true knowledge is knowing that you know nothing. Hey, that's us, dude! <laughs> <laughs> It's so good. And then, so, okay, in terms of history, so when they meet Socrates, he's giving a sermon of sorts to this group of people, and he's kind of orating, and that's when they're like, we are all dust in the wind. (laughs) And he's like, wow, Bill and Ted get me. No one in Athens understands what I'm saying, but these two dudes know what I'm talking about. First of all, I don't know how we can think that this is probably why it's funny. So I understand that maybe this is satire. Um, <laughs> the thought that Bill and Ted are the two people that most connect with the greatest philosopher of all time is absurd and wonderful. <laughs> but I think my issue with this is, from what I've been reading and listening to and learning, mm. that is maybe not the typical representation of Socrates or rating to a crowd of people. Right. Because his general discussions yes. are more one-on-one. Right, indeed. And he would stop people and engage with them directly. I don't believe, since he never wrote any of his work down, I don't believe his purpose was to tell everybody what they should be thinking. Yes. And pass on his philosophical ideas. His idea was to kind of teach people to understand and question for themselves what is, how to live a good life. Arrive at the answer. How do you live a good life and how do you reconcile those issues within yourself? And people would do that on an individual basis. It wouldn't, there's not one set of rules that he believed everybody should know. So I think it's a little bit misleading to have him right. presenting in okay, that scenario. Okay, so we're in rubbish territory again, then, yeah? I, no, I can't say rubbish, because I, I don't know enough. <laughs> you haven't met secrets, Johnson. This is a very long time ago. Okay. But I think it doesn't quite align with doesn't, some of the stuff that I've been looking at. It kind of doesn't at. align anyway, does it? First of all, he he tended to be barefoot. Right. Whereas in the movie, he wears sandals all the time. And oh, they talk right. about his sandals. Yeah. That girl at the mall is like, look at his sandals. <laughs> and... He you know way too much about this movie. You really do, Wolf. <laughs> he walked around barefoot in real life and generally uh, looked like a dishevelled man. Right. I think this is his common He does look quite dishevelled. His hair is He's great, not heveled at all. Yeah. But he wears sandals, and I don't mm, think that's okay. accurate. Okay. Um, I do think it's important that since he was a soldier... Wait, 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 wait. Hang on just a second. Can I just, just step back a moment? So, okay. so, we're, so we're criticising Bill and Ted because Socrates wore sandals. Seriously? David, you, I mean... Of all the things that we've ever done in this podcast, with <laughs> just, the lime barrel right. and all these other moments, right. I think we have to say, if you present a historical figure and you perhaps get them wrong, yeah. we should mention okay, that. Okay, well, we've got a 0% hit rate at the moment. <laughs> okay. Yes, he was a soldier, so I totally believe yeah. that he could interesting, interesting. fight in that rescue scene where they saved Bill okay, and Ted. Okay, excellent. We've also established that, yes, as Bill and Ted say, he was the teacher of Plato, who was the teacher of Aristotle. This is information they pass okay. on to the right. students. Handy. And, much like Ozzy Osbourne, he was accused <laughs> of corrupting the young. And uh, Yeah, he was accused of right. corrupting the young okay. and was made to drink poison. 
as his punishment. Hemlock. So yeah. is this what comes out of the So the when, they, when they do their presentation, uh-huh. they talk about that he's the teacher of Plato, who's yeah. the teacher of Aristotle, they talk uh-huh. about his work. I mean, this is when they're trying to be at their most responsible, of course, yes. So uh, they do pass some informa- useful information. Yeah, so, they, so there is information that they pass on, and that is correct. Great. And I, I thought that was worth, okay, worth so he gets a point. putting out. Very good. Excellent. Yeah. So it gets marked. That's very good. As you say, up next, Dennis Frood, also <laughs> known as Sigmund Frood, also known as Siggy. <laughs> you can call me Siggy. Siggy, but fortunately not Siggy Piggy, which is <laughs> no. one of the weirdest points in the movie, which comes later. Uh, so Sigmund Freud uh, was born in 1856, and he died in 1939, and he was an Austrian neurologist and founder of psychoanalysis, which is obviously a clinical method for treating uh, psychopathology through dialogue between a patient and a psychoanalyst. Uh, he created one of the most impactful and influential intellectual legacies of the 20th century. I think that's generally agreed, whatever your thoughts on the man are. Indeed. Uh, and in the creation of psychoanalysis, Freud developed a number of therapeutic techniques. And I'll go through these because a lot of them come up in the film. Okay. These included, included free association, as well as discovering the phenomenon of transference, both of which feature heavily in his practice. He went on to analyse dreams, published his probably greatest work, uh, The Interpretation of Dreams, which in which he discussed uh, wish fulfilment through dreams, mechanisms of repression, the idea of the libido, which is the mind's energy and is often associated with sexual drive. Um, <laughs> he worked on child psychology and famously redefined sexuality to include infantile forms while formulating his theory of the Oedipus complex. He also delved further into his theory of the unconscious and developed the psychic structure that comprises the id, ego, superego. I cannot do any of his ideas justice, and they are relatively challenging to me, but I have been learning more. And I think the important thing is to mention these as a basis, because Bill and Ted discuss a lot of these. So, David, what are your thoughts on the portrayal of Dennis Frood? Well, I think Dennis is a lot closer to the original, isn't he? I mean, in the sense that he comes across as a, you know, a, uh, a serious-minded, rather stolid sort of gentleman, academic. And he does, as you say, a couple of times, he says, I think at one stage, and he say, how did you feel about that? Or something like that, along the lines. So I, he was, we're getting much closer, I think. You know, at least he was recognisably kind of what he was supposed to be. Yeah, I would agree. And I have some good points to mention. But first of all, do you think that Dennis Frood would have really put a vacuum to his mouth while cleaning? <laughs> well, I think he, in the spirit of inquiry, possibly yes. Do, do you think they make him a little bit too, even if it's subtle, um, sexualized? As in, do you remember the scene no. in the mall where he's holding a corn dog? <laughs> in what way is that sexualized? A corn dog is phallic. It has to be. Oh, come on, you're overthinking this man. He's going over to talk to those girls and he's standing there with his little corn dog. <laughs> And then he sees a vacuum and he's like, what do I do with it? And he puts it in his mouth. No, no, I don't think in any way. And in fact, you've just ruined the movie for me. For all the time, I can never watch it again now. (laughs) Okay, well, I just thought maybe I've been So thanks for the question, but no. Okay. Anyway, I just had to ask. So I think we should go through and tick it off. He says, this must be a dream. That's his first line in the movie. So you get dreams ticked off. Then later on he says... You seem to be suffering from a mild form of hysteria. <laughs> God, Sigmund is in the yep. room. Where is he? And of course, he studied hysterics okay. early on. That formed a lot of his understanding. So, tick. Right. He asks someone to tell them about their mother. <laughs> right, yes. The police yeah. officer is, hey, tell me about yes, your mother. Yes, I remember that. <laughs> um, also, Bill makes a reference to his own Oedipal complex, which is clearly inspired by Freud's work. Right. So, tick, tick. 
He carries out a session of psychoanalysis with Ted, wherein he discusses the effects of transference from Ted's dad onto him. Okay, okay. Impressive. Yep. Yeah. And that's yeah, clear. Oh, like, that's it's, superb, it's, yeah. Uh, so I, I, th- I think there's a lot of good stuff that's happening, and he manages to get the majority of... They manage to get a lot of Sigmund Freud's main works mentioned, one here, one there, you know, all right. the ticks in the box, and that's kind of done, and I would say the majority of his theories are, are mentioned, and yeah. Very good. I have to say, you've prepared very impressively, Wolf, can I say that? So, so we think Dennis is uh, much more up there. Much closer, and do do In you? Fact, th- we think he's a reasonable represent. You know, in a way. Obviously, he's yeah. altered for comedic effect, uh-huh. but understandable the in the yeah. terms. Yeah, Indeed. I think you. If you didn't know who Sigmund Freud was, you would have some yeah. understanding of him afterwards. Very good, excellent, fantastic. So he's he's in the lead at the moment. What about Bob? Okay, so Bob Kengus Khan. I'm just going to say from the beginning, he does not <laughs> pass Freud as being the most accurate. No, absolutely not. So, um, both baseball though. As far as I can see. Well, that's, that's something we learn about him. Is that actually true? Uh, I don't, no, probably not. <laughs> probably not. So, he was born in 1162 as... Probably not. <laughs> I don't know. There are things I don't know, David. So, he was born in 1162 as Temujin. Uh, when he was born, he was holding a blood clot in his hand, which signified that he would become a great leader. And the boy did make this prophecy come true. He had a pretty rough time in his early years. His father was poisoned. His family was deserted by their clan. He killed his stepbrother. He was captured and enslaved. And then he later went back and killed all of them. Um, But these exploits built his name slowly over time and created these foundations from which he would work. He then set about gaining and consolidating power and creating a new future for his people. He united the warring nomadic tribes of the steppes and began breaking traditions such as placing the strongest and most skilled individuals in positions of power. So he got rid of that aristocratic system, and he began putting people into positions of power based on skill and merit. They had earned their their places. So these new systems kind of suppressed tribalism a little bit. He also knew that tribalism would reoccur if he couldn't remove all of the factors which would cause people to be tribal again. So he prohibited the enslavement of any Mongols, he prohibited the kidnapping and selling of anyone or livestock theft. So if you stole someone else's livestock, you were punished for it. You couldn't, there was no way yeah. you could succeed in doing these things. They were outlawed. Uh, he ordered the adoption of writing systems, encouraged trade networks. He conducted a regular census and allowed freedom of religion amongst his people and created the first international postal system. All right. Yep. As they expanded and conquered, he rewarded his people with prizes of war, and he assimilated the conquered peoples rather than kill them or enslave them. This is in general terms. I know that there are probably examples where he didn't do that. Died in the process. Yes. But in general, I think this this makes sense. He knew that if he just killed everybody, his army wouldn't get bigger. Hmm. So if you bring the people into your army and then reward them and treat them fairly, your army will grow exponentially. This is after or after he has sacked and murdered. You know, cities on a, oh, an industrial and, scale. So this does happen, but I don't. I'm not going to go through the whole timeline. So no. there's maybe I'm taking some things from later on. But he does have to build his army before he yeah. can completely yeah. destroy the world. Um, so it was during this time that he gained the name, and this is how it's pronounced differently than we've been pronouncing it. Okay. I believe it's Chinggis Khan. Okay. Which means universal ruler. Right. That's okay. what that means. Uh, it starts the title. But we're getting Bob, right? Yeah, we're going to call him Bob. Um, and basically, he was unrivaled and a fairly progressive leader 
and often is considered a military genius mm. for what he achieved. He would obviously go on to subjugate the Western uh, Xi Kingdom in 1209, crush the Jin Dynasty and sack the capital, which is now Beijing. Uh, after his ambassadors were murdered and his demands of retribution were refused, he collapsed the entire uh, Khwarezmid Empire, which is Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Afghanistan, Iran. He just absolutely eradicated them yeah. forever. I believe he obviously destroyed a lot of bloodlines so they never existed again. Uh, and by his death, uh, his empire spanned from the Caspian Sea to the Sea of Japan. At its peak, the Mongol Empire covered 16% of the world and was the second largest empire ever. After? The British Empire. The British Empire. Fun fact, our main source of this information, it comes from The Secret History of the Mongols, which mm -hmm. was written in the 1240s, uh, which is a Mongol source. It's sometimes questionable, obviously, but it does actually offer up quite a few criticisms and a fairly balanced mm. interpretation of events. So, David, how does Bob Genghis Khan get on in Sandemus? I mean, Bob Genghis Khan is a travesty, isn't he? Because he's represented purely as an unthinking barbarian. Yep. The only time he comes to life in the story at all is when he starts gets his baseball bat in the store and he starts whacking everything. So the only side of the story that comes out is of this, you know, unthinking barbarian. So he doesn't come out well at all. Do you enjoy watching him in the movie? Actually, he's not my favourite, funnily enough. The best joke about him is the fact that they call, you know, this guy who murdered millions, Bob. But apart from that, he's not my favourite, actually. Possibly my favourite joke is that he loves Twinkies. <laughs> <laughs> but it leads me on to the greater point. I don't know why he, he's always eating. In the yeah. movie, he's always eating. Yeah. It's barbaric. It's the same yeah, sort of as I was going to say, I think that their desire to... Um, reduces humanity and make him more animalistic yeah. is to make him hungry all the time. Yeah. Um, it should be pointed out a, a good thing though. He's portrayed by the incredible actor and stuntman Al Yong. Is that right? Yep. Uh, who is. Don't know Al. Oh, you might, and I'm okay. going to tell you the movies you might know him Go from. On. He's a cult star yep. from the 80s. His mustache sets him apart alone, like the Fu Manchu uh -huh. Tash. And he appears in Lethal Weapon, Die Hard, Big Trouble in Little China, They Live. These are great movies where he's always the henchmen who usually get killed, but just steal the scenes that they're in during that time. And I think he often worked on all the stunts behind. So when I see him... Okay, I'll, I'll look out for him. Uh, in Die Hard, he's one of the terrorists who takes over the building. And while he's waiting for the cops to come in, right. you see him reaching in and raiding a bunch of snacks. He takes all these sweets <laughs> and he's stuffing them in his mouth while he's got his gun waiting okay. for the cops to come in. <laughs> Great stuff. Also, he's Great the stunt. he's the guy electrocuting Mel Gibson when he's hanging naked at the end of like Lethal oh, Weapon. And then I think guy, then. and then I think Mel Gibson uh, crushes him with his legs and breaks right. his neck. But it's in that scene. It's great, really great <laughs> stuff. So his first appearance that we see him in the film is in Mongolia. Obviously, he's eating lots of meat and then he's making out with lots of women in this lavish abode. Uh, I kind I know where they're coming from in some of their like depictions of some of his tendencies, but. I think that's based off of not really knowing the man and wanting to just paint the most yeah. basic tapestry you could. He continues to be hungry for the rest of the movie and angry. Uh, although, considering that they make <laughs> him this absolute barbarian, he never really does anything no. to anybody. And he's very compliant. I think because they always lure him with food. Um... <laughs> so they seem to just be able to get him to join them, and he's not yeah. hes this not a, a problem. This is a feature of everybody, of course, in the yes. movie. They all say, oh, right, we're travelling through time to San Dimas. Okay, off we go. You know, there's less... If that happened to me, I would object a little bit more, I think. You know, yeah. I'd want an explanation. I do think he's a little bit scary, and 
one of the more imposing figures. Whereas Billy the Kid, who's a gunman, doesn't impose his presence no. at all. Indeed. At least Bob Genghis Khan does. Um, he also clearly loves his aggressive sports. He he kits himself up in American football pads and helmet. He rides a skateboard. Mm. He swings a baseball bat. And he decapitates a shot mall dummy. He does. Very impressively, yeah, I might yeah, add. Yeah. So he's adept at using weapons and he's a skilled fighter, which is probably accurate. But it's definitely very hard to think that he's even remotely like the actual man. And they definitely don't pass on any of the positive information. And the only thing that they say about him uh, when they do his presentation is, I'm pretty sure they say, and he totally sacked and ravaged China. <laughs> and you're like, okay. I mean, that's true, but yeah, that's how you're going to like pass him on. Indeed. Um, so I think he's, for, me, for my mind, he's maybe the most inaccurate because his portrayal is quite offensive. Yeah. Um, obviously, it should be clear that he's not this, I can't say he's great, uh, and this amazing man, because a lot of people know that he destroyed their entire countries and their history, and he's hated by a lot of people around the world, uh, especially, I believe, in Iran. He's really, yeah. really hated there. Um, he sacks uh, Babylon, doesn't he? But I think we ha you have to weigh up. What he achieved is almost unfathomable. Yeah. To think that he was on the... Yes. He was well into Europe. Yeah, one of the guys who transforms history more than... You know, it's very difficult to think of anybody else from a political point point of view who transforms history so dramatically and he, he yeah he, he must have had incredible things to say if you had an interpreter and yeah. you could listen to what he said but instead they get, just get him to swing a bat yeah, around indeed yeah so we don't like him so he's he's well down the list so should we, you've should we move on to mr arc yes okay take it away Dave. so you've done you've done your preparation far better than me uh, but, but i think you know a lot about uh, mr arc joan joan of arc was um a bloodthirsty religious maniac is one way of looking at her. She is a she was a country girl, a peasant girl from um, the east of France, and she has some visions. And actually, uh, one of the ways in which um, uh, women were accept very much accepted in society, one of the things that was very much part of what they were allowed to do outside of the normal strictures of society, which of course were many and various, was that mysticism the interaction with with a god and having visions is not particularly unusual you know it's very it's um, most heinous most heinous no it's not most heinous it's uh, most acceptable so oh sorry so when she travels and she has these visions and she is told that she needs to to liberate france from the uh, the burgundians and the english invader so when she goes and she travels to the court and that's you know one of the extraordinary things about joan of arc is of course that she kind of breaks many of the rules you know here is this peasant girl who goes and she forces the uh, the king of france who is living in sort of quasi exile fighting this having lost half of his kingdom including paris to henry v uh, and he's sort of hiding away in fact he's not the king of france he's the dauphin at the time uh, the king is playing ball with henry v actually and has married it will marry his daughter to henry v in uh, rems cathedral so she goes and she talks to Charles, who will be Charles VII, and she persuades him that he must give her a command, and he does. He sends her to New Orleans. And this is an, this is an extraordinary story, but it's more comprehensible when you understand that mysticism was very much an accepted part of the, of the role that women played in, uh, okay. medieval, uh, uh, in medieval society. So she... But being armed is absolutely exceptional, and being accepted as a leader of uh, of men and armies 
is extraordinary. And essentially, Charles says, look, I've got nothing to lose here. Let, let's give it a go. And extraordinarily, they defeat the English army around Orléans in 1428. Um, and she acquires this, this mystical energy and um, uh, ability to win. And so the war starts going very badly for the English. Uh, but this gives Charles a bit of a problem. You know, he doesn't want this reconquest being carried out by uh, this peasant woman. So, I mean, it is worth saying that Joan of Arc is very bloodthirsty, although it has to be said, no more bloodthirsty than the bloke she's, she's dealing with. But here are a couple of quotes. I knew only one Burgundian at Donremy, which is where she was born. Uh, I should have been quite willing for them to cut off his head. She writes a letter, actually, after she's been accepted by Charles, she writes a letter to... Um, uh, the English. I am a chieftain of war, and wheresoever I find your followers in France, I will make them leave, willingly or unwillingly. If they do not obey, I will have them put to death. So, you know, she's no shrinking violet. Um, she eventually, uh, she is captured by the Burgundians, and the Burgundians deliver her to the English. The English set up a court in Rouen, uh, where she is judged and the rubric, you know, the traditional rubric is that it's all a stitch up and, you know, it's just a political murder. And in fact, in 1455, the Pope compliantly reverses the conviction of heresy, the Pope being, generally speaking in history, delighted to help the French out. So, and there's, you get there's an entire trans, transcript of the uh, the trial, actually. So yep. It's fascinating and she's very intelligent She's, uh, you know, they can't believe that this illiterate peasant from the east of France is able to uh, to bandy words with these very well-educated clerics. But in the end, actually, they trap her um, in, a, um, in an intellectual trap that allows them to convict her from, for heresy. Uh, she's convicted of heresy and she's burnt at the stake. Doesn't she admit her fault she doesn't and then want... she recounts right at the end yeah and which is when they finally condemn her to death yeah they put a lot of pressure on her you know she's all alone for she's... a couple of years right yeah she's um can't remember how long actually but she's under enormous psychological pressure and at one point they convince her that she has done wrong that she has uh, has made up some of these visions uh but then at the end she recants and she sticks to her guns as it were and am I right that Charles didn't want to come and rescue her? So, yes. Yeah, so because he was a bit worried that she was kind of seen as crazy? Yeah, well, as far as Charles is concerned, this is most inconvenient. You know, he wants to win the throne back on his own. Um, he, there is no place in political society for, um, you know, uh, in political society for uh, mystics. Um, so it's all terribly inconvenient for him. And for him, this Joan being killed in Rouen is perfect the perfect solution because he is allowed to he can declare her a martyr he doesn't have any of the political problems any of the complications towards the end of Joan's career she's not getting any more support from the French side you know so she attacks Paris and is, is beaten off and she does get, doesn't get the support that she wants so uh, Charles decouples himself quite early uh, from Mr Arc How did you feel about the fact that she's praying to God and then she has a vision, and it's Bill and Ted arriving. Yeah, I think... I mean, she's very badly done in the film, isn't she? Yeah. I mean, it's rubbish. Um, 
Is that just because yeah, she's not really in the about film? It? She's not really in the film very much. The only time when she takes any note, you know, she gets any time, is when they're doing the exercise class and she takes over and she's she's rather aggressive and she pushes everybody out of the way and she overdoes it and she's madly fre- frenetic. There's no positive story about Joan of Arc in this, apart from the fact that she's clearly, you know, self-driven. She's not... Uh, compliant and and sitting in the background but she doesn't yeah there's nothing about her in the film so i at least took from the scene in the mall where she takes over the uh, the aerobics (laughs) class that she is an inspiring leader and that she is she naturally commands authority and when she sees the opportunity to take over she does and the whole room is very compliant and they're like yes to begin with and then they get cross about it so who's this person I didn't see that as positive at all. Okay. She seems to be entirely separate from what's going on. Autistic and not, you know, fitting in. They Maybe it's because she's French and they don't want to do any interpretation. They basically... She doesn't speak the whole movie. French don't come out very well in the, the entire movie, actually. But, uh, yes, she doesn't speak. But also, there isn't any of that inspirational leadership. You know, this is somebody who inspires the French to the most extraordinary turnaround. There's no sign of that. And in the scene at the end, she's only fighting, but... And nor is she very funny. You know, there's great comedy value, even in Bob Genghis Khan hitting the head off the what's-it. You know, there's some comedy value. There's no comedy value in... I think she's a little bit of a tragic character, so maybe it's hard to make too much fun of her. Now, they do refer to her as a bodacious soldier and general. What I want to know is, from some of my readings, do you think she was... A bodacious soldier is one part, yeah. and a bodacious general, another part. Or how much of this is a 19th century hagiography right. to do with the sainthood being bestowed yeah. upon her kind of retroactively? I mean, I think one of the things that's a bit irritating about the way Joan is presented these days is that it's quite out of context as a, you know, almost like uh, a self-directed figure who's interested in... I don't know, playing a role. It's quite a 20th century interpretation. She was a mystic who had been commanded by God to do what she does. She was a very medieval figure, even though she does these extraordinary things which are not which are um, not usual in society. But she's interpreted, I think, in a very 20th century way, which is a bit irritating. Did she physically fight a lot? But she's absolutely a bodacious soldier. She fights, she wears armour, which is very much... You know, cross-dressing was... In every society, Christian society, it's not, not just the English, every Christian society, that was an offence against God. She wears armour, she leads attacks. There's one very famous event where she leads an attack on a tower in surrounding Orléans. So absolutely. In terms of generalship, it's very difficult to know because she has many failures as well as successes. But clearly she inspired the armies that she led or, or that she was part of. So in terms of that element of generalship, yes, absolutely. Great. So would we say then, where Bob Genghis Khan is done an actual disservice in how they portray him, that the disservice they do to her is that they don't really give her any screen time or opportunity to do anything? The one time when she appears is, in my view, in a rather negative way. Okay. Pushing the instructor out of the way, taking over... She's not inspirational. She's doing it. She's entirely focused on herself. Interesting. I, I think it's very, neg- very negative. Slightly irritating view. 
Now, do you find Napoleon... Napoleon. <laughs> Negative and irritating. Do I have to talk about who Napoleon is? Would you say that Napoleon the most is... famous figure in world history. Is there anybody more famous, apart from Jesus, than Napoleon? Uh, let's put it to the listeners. Let's put it to the listeners. I mean, he's got to be one of the most widely recognised figures in world history, wouldn't you think? Yeah. I mean, I do not know what, uh, what the Chinese think of Napoleon, I have to say, but I'd have thought he's a kind of world figure. So do I have to talk about small bloke conquers conquers most of Europe? Do I need to tell anyone? Okay, so uh, small bloke, bit plump. Seventeen sixty nine, uh, a an Italian extraction living in Corsica, which became French. Uh, so his original name is an Italian name, actually, um, Italian version of Bonaparte. Okay, uh, famously said, uh, "Not net Josephine" in an advert on telly in the seventies um, <laughs> when I was a lad. And, oh, spread the concept of democratic freedom and the end to serfdom throughout Europe, as well as appearing in an advert. Um, there are two broad historiographies, essentially, of Napoleon. One is the megalomaniac who caused the death of over six million people in pursuit of his ambitions. And that is the British view, at the time, anyway. Yep. Um, people like Pat, Pitt and Wellington and, of course, famously, the Irishman uh, Edmund Burke were fans of the idea that here is a maniac on the loose. The other, that he is a spreader of freedom and reform, such as the Code Napoleon, um, he abolishes serfdom, he abolishes the entity which was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, uh, famously in Voltaire's words, I think. He brought a much better education uh, into France and created the first version of modern Germany. Um, so, you know, there are these two views. Do, do you think he's more likely a mix of the two? Whereby he rises on all these really good ideas and beliefs and changes everything. But when he reaches his kind of peak of power, he begins to become more obsessed with his own image and power. And that's kind of what becomes his downfall. Well, famously, you can trace that view that you've just espoused in the next guy we'll talk about, which is Dave Beethoven. So um, Dave famously writes the Eroica for him. Because this fantastic figure. Yes. In 1812 or 1813, he will then write Wellington's victory, celebrating the fact that he has been defeated. And actually, I think in Eroica, the third movement or the second movement is actually the death of a hero. So actually, sorry, in Eroica, because it was he relates the fact that now Napoleon, in his view, has become a tyrant. Yeah, so he was like, yay, I love Napoleon. Yeah. And he, I wrote this for him. And then he was like, oh my God, he's a terrible yeah. person. I can't do this anymore. And you have this kind of funeral scene in um, uh, Funeral Music, in, which has been interpreted. I'm not sure he ever said that. But. So do you think Napoleon is, and I quote the movie, a dick? <laughs> <laughs> my mature historical interpretation is no, he's much more complicated than that. Because the truth is that he is both. Okay. You know, he is this person that does these amazing things, uh, but he is also a megalomaniac. Um, and he does also lay waste. You know, many people die because of his uh, ambitions, and famously starts a major land war in Southeast Asia. Oh no, that's not Napoleon. Famously, it's Princess Bride, isn't it? He famously, you know, uh, takes on too much when he invades Russia. So, uh, so basically, he and he causes a nation of shopkeepers, which is a not an insult. And B, well, we kicked his ass anyway, so, you know, we don't okay. care. Just enough. <laughs> so, in the film, 
They really do a hatchet job on Napoleon, don't they? He's willful, egocentric, he's a cheat, he's nasty to small children. Yeah. Uh, he's childlike. The weirdest and most distasteful bit in the whole movie is the Siggy Piggy bit. <laughs> yeah. Ziggy is, Piggy, Ziggy oh, Piggy. It's awful. I mean, you know, you yeah. just have to... <laughs> oh, oh, I hated that bit. I really hated it. Genuinely. Uh, yeah. From the bottom of my heart. I don't like it either, but Napoleon quite likes it. He does. <laughs> he steals the ice cream. Uh, he loves the glass. <laughs> he loves the glass. He pushes the kids out of the way on the water slide. He cheats at bowling. He Do you remember that kid bowling? scores and he goes to write down like a, a zero instead of like <laughs> yes. an actual... And they see him and he's like mm, trying to cover his arms <laughs> so they don't see that he's scoring them down because he can't bowl. He is terrible. So, he, you know, there's a hatchet job on Napoleon. There's nothing about the Code Napoleon there. There's nothing about the spreading of democratic freedoms. This is a guy who just wants to win and have everything. And I absolutely love his little bit of uh, sun cream. Uh, on his nose, <laughs> and his like—he's very childlike. His, isn't his he? swimming cap. Yes. He's... But I also think that the scene where he's in the water park and he discovers that the water slides are really fun is one of the most fun scenes in the movie, where he's racing up, shoving the kids out of the way, diving down the water slides. I love it. I don't like that. I just want the guy. I'm a very compliant person. I want the guy running the slides to chuck him out. Yeah, but they're always they're always teens who are working a summer job, like That's spotty true. teens who don't care yes. about the rules. And that, remember, he's like, "Hurry up, Mister!" And he's like trying to push him down the slide because <laughs> he's scared. He's never seen this before. Yes, that is true. You yeah. have to forget this is Napoleon transported into the future who's never seen a water slide before. Yeah. He's a bit frightened. They shove him down. They shove him down. Yes, quite rightly too, obviously. Um. So I, in the movie... I can't remember what he does at the end, when it comes to San Dimas. So, this is what I'm going to say. In the movie, he's presenting a strategic battle plan for the invasion of Russia. And he, he clearly draws it, he goes, what a slide, uh, as he's like uh, moving his motion like down the, the map. I can't remember why, it kind of looks like a water slide. But am I right that his strategic battle plan for invading Russia is where the tides turned yeah. for him? Because he, he didn't accomplish it fully... And because that happens, he then is un- he spread himself too far apart. He destroys it- his army in um, in invading Russia. So the traditional story: the Russians retreat, and also there's a um, I think it's Koznetsov, who is the Russian general, who's a very talented general himself and understands how to play Napoleon. And even where Napoleon wins at places like Borodino, it's a very difficult victory. Um, so. It's a disaster for him. In the end, his grand army dies in the winter. Most of them die out of an army of something like half a million. I think something 150,000 comes back. And he deserts them and goes back to France. And that is very much, if not the end, the beginning of the end. He never recovers from that. So would you say that presenting that battle plan is the true epitome of Napoleon because it's him at his most overstretching and egotistical? to think he can successfully invade and conquer all of Russia. It is interesting to choose that one to present, other than all his other extraordinary, incredibly brilliant victories. And then, remember, doesn't one of them question him, and then he slaps his his, cane down on the board and swats all of the men off the board. (laughs) Because he's being petulant, yeah. Yes, he is a petulant child. Which is not particularly fair. I mean, poor old Napoleon is poorly served by his generals, actually. There's nobody, very few of his generals ever display the level of genius that you could expect. And even Wellington has him, people like Sir John Moore have competent, very competent generals that fight under him. 
I'm probably being a bit. So would you say uh, um, that he's he's a much greater tactician and leader and figure than the film ever even comes close to yeah. presenting him as? This is again a negative, very negative view of okay, Napoleon, fair enough. isn't it? You know, it's all and it definitely doesn't talk. There's none of the none. Of, there's no none of the greatness of the man in there, is there? Which I think is fine because obviously it's a comedy movie, but they don't really talk about anything that he did achieve. Nothing at all, yeah. It's they really all, don't talk about anything that It's all the negative side of his character, yeah. Okay, next up, Dave Dave Beethoven. Beethoven. So, the world's greatest composer. Now, Lewis might get at me for, not, for preferring Bill and Ted to Wayne's World. However wrong Lewis is, and he is wrong, nonetheless, and people will argue, I mean, people will talk about Mozart Handel, I don't know who they'll talk about. Wait, but, what's my favourite line in the whole movie? Don't know, what is your favourite line in the whole movie? He loves Mozart's Requiem, Handel's Messiah, and Bon Jovi's Slippery When Wet. <laughs> that was a good moment, I was uh, Obviously, one of the world's greatest composers, I would, for me, bar none, and a personal hero. Um, born 1770, lives through that, and you can see his music evolve from the high point of classicism and Mozart through bridging that gap over to the more to the romanticism of people like Brahms and and Schubert and so on um extraordinary uh, extraordinary sound extraordinary melodies he develops music and 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 makes everything bigger and grander I'm not a musician so I can't talk about it technically but obviously as everybody knows one of the greatest names in music ever. You know, everybody knows Beethoven in the way that not everybody knows Henry Purcell, for example. So yeah. there's a very famous occasion in the Eroica, for example, which is really his, in a way, his first modern symphony. The first and the second are quite nice bits of work, actually, but they're <laughs> very much... Yes, nice of me. Yeah. Uh, he did these two symphonies, <laughs> didn't he? Quite nice bits of work. But they're quite, you know, they're quite small and they're very much in the classical tradition, whereas... The famous mo- moment in the third symphony where there's a very... I think in the first movement there's a clash of brass comes in and it's, there's some discordancy. And they stop in the rehearsal and the, the guy says, oh, sorry, you've got, that's all wrong. I must have got to have it written down wrong because that sounds terrible. But that, And, you know, he gets, gets a rap on the knuckles because that's exactly what Beethoven is doing. He's creating different types of melody. And then, of course, famously has a very difficult personal life was very passionate about Napoleon at the beginning, as we've said, and then hated him for his tyranny. He begins to lose his hearing, and he traces it back to a fit he suffers at the age of 28 in 1798, uh, when he was so cross at being interrupted in his work that he had a screaming fit, and which gives you an idea of the man. So this is kind of like the quintessential artist figure, in a way, of very convinced of his art and of his own importance. He's no shrinking violet again. And they they declared him the new Mozart as a child prodigy from mm. very early on, right? Right, yeah. When he, before, I don't know, when he was like 15, 16, they were like, this guy's a child prodigy, he's the next Mozart, right. even before he'd ever published. But he never has Mozart's facility, you know? You know, everything about Mozart is is easy, is light, it's, you know, no, I'm not going to criticise Mozart, obviously he's got his great depths as well, but but he's just an extraordinary genius, Mozart. Everything comes seems to come very easily to him, whereas Mozart's scripts, whereas Beethoven's scripts are all scrubbed out and changed. You know, you get this impression of somebody who really has to work hard to extract the genius from And I think I'm just himself. suggesting, if he's being told by everyone around him, 
that this is his legacy, he is the new Mozart, then you must feel that pressure mm. to fulfil that role. Yeah. But he's a very strong character. He's not, so he is convinced of his own talent. In his personal life, he's rather overbearing as well. So uh, there's a... So he, as he's going deaf, he writes this document called the Heiglandstadt Testament. In his writing appears this concept of the immortal beloved. Nobody ever knows who who it is. He never finds love. This his love for this person is unrequited. He has a nephew, Carl. So his brother marries somebody. His brother then dies. He doesn't like his brother's wife, and he actually fights. Uh, his sister-in-law for custody of Carl and I think wins I think loses again then wins again and Carl actually tries to commit suicide at one point Um, it's not clear that that's because of Beethoven but Beethoven was certainly very overbearing later in life I think they become rather quite reconciled Carl and Ludwig but he's not an easy man is the point they're making you know this isn't somebody you put on a pedestal and saying here is this you know, he's a great human being, necessarily. He's not a terrible man, but he's a difficult person. And that's kind of what Beethoven's music's like a bit, isn't it? You know, it's so you, some people find it a bit, a bit loud, a bit aggressive, um, but it's subtle, um, uh, harmonic. Yeah, yeah, it's just genius. Isn't Ludwig a really nice name to say? Ludwig. Yeah, it's very <laughs> nice. Um, so, this is going to be the thing that I was going to raise yeah. about the movie. Actually, first of all, What's your, yeah, so how what's your depiction? What do you think that they do with him? So, again, it's a bit disappointing because, I mean, there are too many character, historical characters in a way for any of them to come across and display their genuine characteristics. But at least you there is something of the, the love of music and the genius in him. His one scene really is in the... Um, in the mall again, isn't it? When yep. he gets the electronic kit and he just goes bonkers and he's doing I all these... I think he... First of all, he's playing three keyboards yeah. on... The second watch, I think he's playing six. Right. Because yeah. there's two on top of each other. Yeah. So at least you get something like that. You know, he's got the wild look. He's got the, this is me, this, I can, you know, I can do this. So at least there's something in that. But that is really all we see of him, isn't it? Yeah. And in fairness, if you were going to depict the greatest yeah. musician of all time, you would get him to play in music. In some Demas Mall. And that's why he does. You'd probably do that, yeah. This is my problem, though. It's not very funny. They pick him up in the year 1810. Right. At this point... I'm pretty sure he's lost more than 50% of his hearing. Okay. And the hearing loss is... If you ask anyone what's the what's the one thing you know about Beethoven, they know that he composed some of the greatest music ever written while mostly deaf. Yeah. Which is astonishing. Truly astonishing. It's like a superhero. It is. And yet, in this movie where you just have to reduce all of these characters down to like two key facts that everybody knows, they don't ever mention that you he's deaf. You don't get the deafness, do you? I'm quite like that. I quite like that actually because actually he becomes he does become progressive and it obviously affects his character very deeply. It takes him quite a long time to become profoundly deaf. Not really till eighteen twenty four that he's really profoundly deaf. And there's the famous story about him being turned around to see the crowd when he does his ninth symphony because he can't hear the the you know the outrageous applause and ovation. But it's a bit of a albatross. For Beethoven, this thing about the deafness, isn't it? I guess. I mean? Okay, fair enough. You know, oh, he's a great musician and he's he's deaf, the deaf guy. You know, I I'm I'm in favour. I uh, I just thought it was really interesting learning about him that as his hearing deteriorated, he became more of a social recluse. Hmm. 
because it became more challenging. He had to keep having his ear trumpets. You would do, wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah. And then because he became more of a recluse and the artist that he was, I think at one point he was picked up for vagrancy because they thought he was this disheveled, homeless person. I just thought it was interesting that in 1810, they clearly give us the year, so we have some idea about what's happening, that there's never any sign of of that, which I think was maybe the thing that we... If we aren't really going to do any of these characters justice, the one thing that we might want to know about Beethoven... Fair enough, yeah. I suppose, yeah. But yes, the the keyboards, music... I don't know why he gets arrested, though. He's the only one. I can't quite figure out why he gets arrested. (laughs) The crowd loves it. They're like, yay! And there's this one guy who owns the shop... He's like, hey, he's playing my instrument too good. <laughs> he can't, he can't uh, go on a sale, you see. He's getting in the way of sales. He's getting in the way of, of mammon. Right. Which brings us... We come to the end. To the very last. Abe Lincoln. Finally, a man... I don't think they give him any other name, which I'll come to. Abraham Lincoln, uh, born in 1809, uh, died in 1865. He was obviously a statesman, politician, lawyer. And the 16th President of the United States. I don't really need to say too much about him, especially because some of our listeners will know. He obviously led the country during the American Civil War, preserved the Union, abolished slavery, and was long remembered for strengthening the government and economy, and is probably considered the greatest president of all time. His legacy pretty much puts him out there, and if anybody tries to talk about their own legacy, which Trump has done recently, they will compare themselves to him, and him alone. Uh, he, I think he, he surpassed Washington, I believe, in, in most right. people's eyes. Although, obviously, he's not a perfect figure. I would love to go into a lot of detail about some Is of he the not? So what are the negatives? Because I've never heard a single negative about Abe, apart from the fact that he was in a very dull movie with, um, what's his name? I think the biggest issue that creeps in is the connection between him and emancipation. Mm. To what extent was he the great emancipator? And... The fact that, if I'm getting this correct, in his earlier years, he had very different viewpoints on slavery, Mm. the abolishment of slavery, and he was very reluctant to do it because it was in the Constitution that it was allowed to happen. He didn't want to go against the Constitution, so he didn't do that. And a lot of his acts, uh, uh, like his Emancipation Proclamation, was a military strategic decision. Mm to undermine right. the southern states, not because he cared about right. the issue. And while that was happening, other states that, I believe other states that were kind of out of this, were allowed to continue to keep slaves. Right. The impression I get is that he just took a long time to make some of these changes, and sometimes people remember him now as this the one great man who changed it all, mm. but abolitionists did not consider him. He said he wasn't an abolitionist. Right. And he also said that even though every man, woman, and child deserved the right to improve their status in America, he didn't believe that black people should have the same social and economic rights as white people. Right. And there are these quotes and stuff that exist from within him. And obviously, they come at different points, and he does achieve a lot of great things. The 13th Amendment comes in, all of this stuff. But I just think that I don't want to just say outright, Yes, he's a perfect, mm. flawless historical figure. Right. We know that's probably never going to be the case. Yeah. And there are these that issues. Is, yeah. And if we ever do a Lincoln movie or a yeah. Civil War movie, we can go into it a little bit more. Um, how do you think the film portrays him? They portray him with reverence, don't they? And a little bit of fun. Uh, they poke a little bit of fun with, at him, but it's all within the safe bounds of this is our greatest president and we're not going to do him down. Well, yeah, would you say they poke the least fun at him? Yeah. 
He's the reverence is there, isn't there? And yeah. And at the end, he's the guy who closes off the San Dimas presentation with, of course, you know, very sensible words, you know, be yeah. excellent to each other and... Party on, dudes! <laughs> so, which, of course, is good advice you'd expect from a president. Yeah, he, they, they get him into the film, but he doesn't do very much. No. And they definitely don't give him any of those same scenes where... I know he he's kind of funny, they're all funny, but... Yeah, I really think that they are being quite wary about how they present him. They're quite happy to present a 19th century hero of France as, you know, a, a venal idiot. They're not prepared to present a 19th century hero of America as a venal idiot. Yeah. Um, In summary. And really, the most they're going to go to is that, that a- Abraham Lincoln would say, party on dudes. And they're like, whoa, yeah, push, whoa. To push the boundaries, people. <laughs> um I guess it's quite funny that he thinks that Bill and Ted are excellent individuals. It does. Well, I think which is all part of the Lincoln wisdom shtick, isn't it? Yeah, and it works within the legacy of the movie that their band, Wild Stallings, brings world peace. Indeed. Um, he does say, in terms of historical accuracy, I'm a lawyer, you know, which is true. Okay. And he gets his birthday correct as well, I believe. Um, he looks like Abraham Lincoln in the, in the way that we like think a, he does. Yeah. And he obviously uses some of the opening lines of the great Gettysburg Address to begin his speech to the students. Four score, and then he kind of keeps going on. It's like, and seven minutes ago, wherever it is, um, when he introduces them. So obviously they know that he did the Gettysburg Address, so they're going to incorporate that in. Mm -hmm. Great. But maybe because all the students know him so well, they do not ever talk about any of his achievements at all, other than he's the greatest president that's ever lived. Yeah. That, that's all they pretty much say about him, and that's all that the movie ever says. Yeah. Um, he doesn't do anything else. And he doesn't. There are no other facts that are delivered about his character, which are with a lot of the others. So I just think, yeah, like we say, they can't really make too much fun of him because he's too... Yeah, he's... He's too personal a yes, hero indeed. to so many people yeah. uh, in the in, in the yeah, film. he's kind of untouchable. Okay, we ought to keep moving, Wolf, because we have been a while now. So... From that list, basically, what we're saying is that most of them are pretty rubbish. You've Abe does okay. Socrates does pretty Dennis good because okay. he's, he's in it a lot. He's not terrible. Um, but apart from that, they're reasonably rubbish introductions. Do we, David, do we think Freud might be the best? Freud is probably the best, yeah. Okay. Dennis Freud, who I did not know was called Dennis, actually. I must admit, I thought they called him Siggy. So there we go. No, he calls himself Siggy. He goes over to that and goes, you can call me Siggy. What is holding the corn dog? I'm telling you. <laughs> I think you've analysed this way too deeply. Okay, so... Oh, by the way, Henry VIII in medieval times. You know the medieval stuff? Yeah. Henry VIII. It's all wrong. I mean, it's rubbish. Uh, uh, do we think those princesses are meant to be... Any historical characters that, that aren't no, in the No, don't think so. Okay. Couldn't, couldn't think of them. Anyway, I mean, that was, you know, obviously. I'm not going to get upset yeah. by it, but, it, you know, totally wrong. So, in, in summary, all the criticism that we've just delivered about this movie, <laughs> do we care about any no, of No, of course we don't. We've only done it, we've only used it as a, a frankly, a cheat to get him onto this programme so we can talk about one of the greatest comedy movies of all time. Yeah, we don't agree. care about the history. Well, I do. Well, I do. <laughs> do you? Well, not about the history in the film. No. The, these eight historical figures, I have really enjoyed learning about these eight historical figures. Right, yes. It's been handy for this, I must admit. It's been great learning about Billy the Kid in particular, actually. For it's really good to cover a variety of topics all in one film. Indeed. And I do think this is the number one thing. 
what they're presenting to us is... I'm going to use the word layman, but I think that's... I'm not. Well, it's, it's the received history. It's like the Sellers and Yeatman thing, isn't it? About 1066 and all that. This is the world history as is presented... Anyone who's, who's not particularly involved in history or interested yeah. in history or engaged with it, if you know one or two facts about these people, I would say these eight people generally would encompass the general population's understanding of those people. These are eight famous people, yeah. You need to give a snapshot of them. Do they look and sound like them and do they kind of mention the historical things that they I think did? you're going, being way too positive. You've been way too positive. Actually, what this does, if we're going to get serious about it, it just perpetuates, in the main, a whole load of half-truths and lies. <laughs> oh, no, okay, that's actually a really good it's point. It's really rubbish. I mean, that, you know, it is part of that. This is exactly the thing that Seller and Yeatman are objecting to, that there is this received history and everybody's too lazy to challenge it and goes along with it, you know. Okay, so I think we should ask everybody, do you think that... This movie's presentation of the historical characters is fine. It's a it's a good thing because it's just having fun and it suits all audiences. Or is it doing humanity a disservice? <laughs> Bill and Ted is not doing humanity a disservice because it's a giggle from start to finish. So that's fine. But don't tell me there is it is giving any historical benefit to anybody in any way, shape, or form. Don't tell me that. Okay, okay. I'm just saying, when I was a child, it made me go... I could at okay. least go and... I've been being a young child, so I'm not informed. I'm not ignorant. So you saw the movie, and you said, oh, okay, that's interesting. I'll go and find out about Napoleon. I definitely remember asking my parents, wait, who is this person? Okay, fair enough. Then. What did they do? Okay, well, in the face of empirical evidence, I'll have to modify my claim. But maybe that, maybe that only works for people who are, like, under 10. But if it works for anybody, that's something. So if somebody out there watching it goes... Who is this Napoleon? What did they do? And then if their parents actually know and then can pass on the history, great. Yeah. Um, if they go, I don't know, there was some French dude. Or if they go, oh, so that's what Napoleon was like, then that's a bit of a travesty. Yeah. Or if they go, oh, Joan of Arc was just, you know, somebody who, I mean, you know, who was nothing. I mean, it's just, you know, that's not good. I'm not being very articulate with that. I what, would you, point. what would you score this film? As a film, I As think it's you can't. It's an eight for eight, me, yeah, because it's really funny and it's enormous fun. I don't think it's a, and it spawned a thing, didn't it? I mean, d this is the first one of that sort of yeah, and then Wayne's the, World, Bogues Adventure uh, stuff. Eighty nine. So, so I get the impression it came at the end of the eighties period of like slacker comedies. Right. But if you're talking about, does it come before Wayne's World? Yes, it does. What are the other slacker comedies? Oh, the eighties were just rife with. Like what? I don't know, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Right. Obviously, you'd had all of the... the uh, Slightly different, because they're a bit serious. Breakfast Club and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, There was different. obviously just like... But this, for me, it was... I had always seen this movie as the first of that really kind of outrageously stoner, weird, um, uh, dumb type... I guess I think I thought it was coming after, like, National Lampoon's genre, Animal right. House and coming after Porky's Again, I'd and say that's stuff. quite... National Lampoon's kind of quite standard. Okay. It's the idea of presenting these guys who are real, you know, uh, real stoners that seem to me to be different. And Wayne's World is 92, so it's... I actually really love how much fun they have with history. Yeah. I genuinely love it. They do have a It's really nice to just kind of take a break as well and yeah. not... I know we've done this, like, to try and question it. Yeah. But 
when I'm watching the film, I never want to do that. It's just so much yeah. fun. So okay. I'm going to agree. Eight. Great. Okay. Um, historical do we record. even give it a historical <laughs> score? Yeah, we're down with Braveheart. Just, give, just call it Braveheart. Yeah. What are we going to say? Are we going to say... Now, because this intention is not to be accurate, we give it does a one? that help? Should we give it a one? Okay, let's just give it a one. Okay, because there is some history in it. So, we had all this this other game, which was we what we were going to do is pick our eight people that we would like to come back if we were doing our San Dimas presentation. Who's on your list, Wolf? I think you should go first, David. Do you? Yes. Okay. Should I do all eight? Uh, it's just you do all eight and... Uh, okay. I'll give you a quick line about why. Okay, so I'm going to start, and it's a very random list. I found this surprisingly difficult. I found it? it really hard. It it's took me hard. weeks. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do it. Better be good then. That's hope. Oh, we're good. So, uh, number one, Confucius. Yep. Probably the most influential person in history. It's, you know, obviously that's an outrageous statement, but, you know, it has affected the lives and still today shapes attitudes, it seems to me. So, he's number one. A bit more trivial, Olivia. Livia is the wife of the Emperor Augustus, and there is this scurrilous rumour that she poisoned a whole load of Augustus's heirs, adopted and uh, and legally adopted, and you which know. of course comes out in I, Claudius, and I want to know. Yep. I'd quite like to meet her. Number three, Ivor the Boneless, just because I've got to meet a Viking, haven't I? You know, yeah. I would like to know what is in the mind of a Viking and how they live their lives, and he's as good as any other. And also, I can find out why he was called the Boneless. You know, which is might be interesting. Although you might not want to find out, <laughs> what, what you know. like a presentation to all these school kids, yeah. and you watch him like debone this person. <laughs> you're like, oh my god! <laughs> it could just be that he was disabled. You know, it could just be that he was carried around on a shield. You see, anyway. So Oliver Cromwell. One of the most controversial, enigmatic, you know, reinterpreted characters in history. Um, I would like to look him in the eyes and form my own opinion of him with him in front of me. Christine de Pizon, who's a, a, a famous writer in the medieval times, who genuinely broke a lot of the lot of walls that held women in. She she was a professional writer. She earned her living by writing. Um, she was able to advance views that said, look, you know, why are we treating women in this way and why are we thinking about it in this way? Uh, and recently got interested in her because Jane's reading and somebody called Caitlin, who's a listener, uh, uh, we're going to try and do something together about her. So that's great. Great. Joseph Wright. Do you know who Joseph Wright is? No. Joseph Wright is comes from Derby. And obviously, you know, Derby need a bit of a boost at the moment, having just been beaten by uh, the mighty villa. And everybody was on Villa's side because of Tom's, Tom Bloody Hanks. I mean, it's an outrage. Uh, okay. An outrage. Anyway, uh, Joseph Wright is one of the few artists, very few artists, who presents the excitement and release of the Industrial Revolution. The whole story about the Industrial Revolution has become a very negative one. And at the time, dark satanic mills, you know, this uh, poverty and yeah. all that. Joseph Wright actually presents the, ex- the fire of discovery, the things that was driving people in little little forges uncovering this incredible science that was that was liberating uh, you know thousands of people jane austen because i could do the chin wag uh, and talk somebody who really understands what makes people tick and is just very funny yeah and then finally just to be serious and and weighty uh i'd have to meet gandhi because you know here is a from what I know about him, one of the most impressive political figures in history, and I'd love to know what, what made him tick. Yeah. Well, great list. 
Uh, I thought about some of those figures, and there's a lot of. Uh, Is there a bit of overlap? No, not quite. I didn't pick any of the okay. same, but there's. Okay. We'll see. So. With my list, what I tried to do is I wanted to expand my knowledge completely. Uh-huh. So these eight people, I pretty much didn't know anything about them beforehand. Uh, and I've done them in chronological okay. order. So, and forgive me if any of my pronunciations are wrong. And Heduana, she is the world's earliest known poet, and she is the daughter of Sargon the Great. So she lived from... 2,285 to 2,250 BCE in the Sumerian city-state of Ur. She was the high priestess of the goddess Inanna and is responsible for crafting the pantheon of gods for which all of the people of Mesopotamia believed in. She gave them these depictions which enabled them to understand the belief system, which unified all of the cultures which were coming together in that area. I think learning anything about Mesopotamia Back, that far back would be incredible. Uh-huh. And since she's the daughter of the ruler as well, and then her significance in life, you can kind of get information from multiple strands. Great. Then uh, Nefertiti, okay. 1370 to 1330. She was obviously the Egyptian queen alongside Pharaoh um, Akhenaten. And it was during a period of great religious change. Mm-hmm. Also, this is what I want to know. People believe that she acted as the sole ruler after his death. Right. But I don't think people know that for certain. Mm. I'd love to find out yeah. more. A, a really great Egyptian figure and maybe one who's not horrible? Yeah. We'll see. Okay. Uh, Archimedes. Okay, yes. Um, and not the little owl. Right. That's a robot owl. <laughs> um, the famous Greek mathematician and inventor. Right. So the thing that... Uh, did I want him to jump in and out of a bath on stage uh, for the audience? Of course. Of maybe. course. Yes, good point. Actually, that's good thinking. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to know more about him. The fact that he influenced Galileo, Kepler, Descartes, Fermat... He influenced the entire uh, 15th and 16th century mm. European explosion in mathematics because of his work that was so advanced at the time. Mm. And then the fact that he also developed a variety of inventions, which we still use now, and he developed these war machines that were able to help defend the city of Syracuse mm. from the Roman invasion far longer than they anticipated. Yeah. The thought that there's this that he was able to both be this incredible inventor and mathematician and change the world... Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. I think it's it'd be great. Bad, it? yeah. Plus, for a Greek figure, he's you know maybe one of the not less known, but he's not one of the huge ones. Uh, then, Ban Zhao. She was a Chinese scholar, forty-five to one hundred and fifteen. See, uh, she was the first female historian. So she worked during the Han Dynasty, carried out the work of her father, and wrote the Book of Han, which is one of the best-known histories written and influenced all future dynastic histories of China mm. ever since. Also. Right. While she was working and became the lady-in-waiting to the emperor, it was during the period when Confucianism was arising. Mm. So she witnesses the change from feudalism to imperialism during her writings. And the role of women changes forever after Confucianism fully sets in and they become more set into these societal roles. Mm. So she represents; she's there right at this peak. She's just incredibly influential. I think it should be really fascinating to learn about that part of the world at that time. Mm-hmm. Then Simone Bolivar, okay. if I've pronounced that correctly. Um, we go to South America. He's possibly their greatest general and politician ever in Latin America. He was known as the Liberator due to his exceptional work bringing independence to South America from the Spanish, while also attempting to instill systems in place that would lay the foundation for the entire future success of the continent of South America. He had this dream and this vision it didn't come to fruition, but he wanted to 
make them a little bit more like the United States of America mm-hmm. in terms of how they all work together and were kind of unified. And obviously he freed the he freed Ecuador, Venezuela, Peru, Colombia, and Bolivia, which is now named after him. Because it used to just be Upper Peru, then it became Bolivia and was named after him. So that'd be incredible. I don't know anything about him. I'd love to know more. Then we have Sitting Bull. He united the Shu tribes in their fight for survival in the Great North Plains. And obviously alongside Crazy Horse managed to defeat General Custer, mm-hmm. which is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he'd be really fascinating. That was at the Battle of Little Bighorn. Yeah. Really fascinating as a cultural figure for the Native Americans, as well as a leader in you know mm. conflict and war. I think yeah. he'd be really interesting. And he was considered so influential that even though they were on a reservation, when they went to arrest him for fear that he was going to inspire revolt, they shot and killed him. Mm. He was such an influential figure that he was, he was murdered for his his place. Uh, then we have Nellie Bly, which I didn't know anything about, no, and I'm shocked. About. So she's a trailblazing investigative journalist and reporter from New York, 1864 to 1922. She was brave, tenacious, and most famously, in order to investigate the conditions for people in mental asylums, she feigned insanity, Blimey. got taken into the mental asylum, wrote, uh, lived there for 10 days, studied everything, all the food, the conditions, all the impatience, investigated them, collected all of her findings, got released, wrote this breath, uh, uh, incredible piece, had it released by the newspapers, and then she was called in by the government to help come up with reforms for this area. And then she was influential in that. She also decided that she wanted to beat uh, Jules Verne's Around the World in 80 Days. So she did it on her own. When women weren't really travelling on their own, she did it in 72 days. Right. She was involved in war correspondence yeah. regarding the suffragette movement and was on in Vienna during World War One writing. And she transformed investigative journalism at the time. And lastly, uh, and I hope I pronounced this right, uh, Lisa Meitner. She was an Austrian-Swedish physicist, 1878 to 1968. She was responsible for discovering and coining the term nuclear fission when they split a uranium atom. Obviously, you split the atom into small atoms. This is obviously what led to stuff like the Manhattan Project, which is not necessarily a good thing. Uh, It actually isn't. But um, nuclear science was forever changed, and Mm. science in the whole was altered. But her work was almost completely forgotten, and she never received the Nobel Prize despite discovering it. Her, she was obviously a woman, and she was Jewish, and she had to flee Germany. She continued to work with her partner, Han, but when it came to publishing the work, he was concerned that if he had her name on it, it would affect his work. So he published all of the work without oh, her. Yeah, it's an outrage. And even though she, he didn't fully understand the science yeah. and hadn't done all the discoveries and couldn't explain it properly in his papers, which he submitted to which he won a Nobel Prize, and she wrote in a letter explaining how it worked. She was still never given a Nobel Prize, and I still don't think the Nobel Committee has recognised her. And uh, I think she would be, from a scientific point of view, she would be able to give an incredible presentation about um, nuclear experimentation and science, and we would learn an incredible amount from a person who is slightly forgotten from history. Fantastic, good choice. We need to finish. Yes. Uh, because it's been an hour and a half. So, we've come to the end. We have talked about one of the, one of the greatest movies of all time. Yes. Uh, we would love to hear everybody else's eight people that they would bring to Sam Demas. 
And we've had a lot of good contributions already. Yeah, we have actually. Yeah, so I raised the questions because I didn't know what to I choose. tried not to look at them because I didn't want people to give me any ideas. <laughs> I looked to them. Uh, great. Let's have the roundup. Okay, welcome back to our roundup. We know you love this, and this time you've got a double helping. But I'll keep it brief because I know the episode's been quite long. So first up is Selma. And this is actually Wolf's words, but my voice you're hearing. So a note to add before we begin about Wolf's poor choice of words in the episode regarding the tough tests that were created to stop African-Americans from earning the right to the vote were not harder than those for American citizens. But what, of course, he meant was because obviously African-Americans were citizens at the time, just like everyone else, but were being unfairly marginalised. We hope you know what we meant, just a slip of the tongue, but thought it wise to make the clarification. On to the Facebook poll and the chat. 65 of you said you'd not seen the film, but were interested to do so, while 24 of you loved it. But no one had it as their top 10 film, it's got to be said. Stuart said he loved the film, both as an historical archive and as a piece of art. But he did disagree with David's opinions on the British actor's bad American accents. There were some debates about the portrayal of LBJ, as expected, but Michael felt the portrayal was well done based on his readings of a number of Johnson biographies, while Jen wanted to remind everyone that with current gerrymandering and voter suppression in the United States as well as around the world, I suppose, this topic is still vitally relevant. At the other end of the spectrum, eight of you thought that it was only okay and 27 of you were unlikely to watch it. The overall numbers suggest the film has not been as widely seen compared to most of our selections, but hopefully our chat has encouraged more people like Kathleen to go and watch it. Also, Andrew and Jude both remarked on the quality of the Civil Rights Museum at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee, and recommend everyone visit, which we'd certainly like to do. And then Dave nicely informed us that Jim Crow was an antebellum fictional racist character as opposed to the real person we really appreciated hearing all your thoughts facts and stories so keep them coming again and then made in daglin which is my bit and i felt a bit guilty that i probably undersold this movie either that or the response generally to the film fell into the well it's fine but category as charmian said not compelling and as rowena said a bit superficial which i think is probably fair enough but I would just like to say that it's really good entertainment, very heartwarming, and while it deals with its subjects with a light touch, it may be all the more effective for that, and it's a really important topic. It also, obviously, did paint that community and that time pretty well, because it was great to hear from Sue, who's from Dagenham, and for whom it went down really well, and that's got to be a great recommendation. So, you know, for the 57 of you who had not seen it but were interested, next time you have a lazy evening in, Give it a go. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Last word, though, to Lewis, who expressed outrage at the perfectly unobjectionable and indeed unarguable statement that Bill and Ted is a film superior by far to Wayne's World. I mean, who could argue with that? Why would you argue with that? However, if you have to, now's your chance. OK, fantastic. So that is it. Fantastic movie. We had a great time. We look forward to everybody else's ideas. And Share your thoughts with us, and as a parting message, remember, be, be excellent to each other. <laughs> Are you not entertained? Hey. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 